This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So I was making a joke earlier that, you know, when you come to Napa, it's beautiful weather and wine and cheese, and now we'll be talking about cancer, which everybody wants to do when they come to Napa. Um, so I'm going to talk about the interesting and very important topic of managing malignancies uh, pre-transplant. Um, and post-transplantation. So cancer and transplantation. Cancer is second only to cardiovascular disease now as a leading cause of post-transplant mortality, surpassing death from infection in recent reports, and it's anticipated to overtake cardiovascular disease as a leading cause of death in transplant recipients within the next 10 years. Solid organ transplant recipients are estimated, as you probably know, to have a two- to four-fold greater overall risk of malignancy than the general population. The risk is quite high and especially high for cancers associated with oncogenic viruses like post-transplant lymphoproliferative disease, which has been associated with Epstein-Barr virus, Kaposi's sarcoma, which has been associated with human herpes virus 8, and non-melanoma skin cancers and anogenital cancers, which has been associated with human papillomavirus. And the most common cancer after transplant is squamous cell skin cancer, which has a risk greater than 50-fold compared to the general population. So in this study um, that was published in JAMA in 2011, it looked specifically at the spectrum of cancer risk among uh, solid organ transplant recipients in the United States. This was a cohort study um, using linked data on solid organ transplant recipients from the USRDS um, and 13 state and regional cancer registries. And it looked at 175,000 solid organ transplant recipients, of which 58.4% were kidney transplant recipients, 21% were liver, 10% were heart, and 4% were lung. And while this is a busy slide, what this is trying to show you is looking at the number of observed versus expected cases of certain malignancies. This table focuses on the risk of infection-related malignancies, the ones that I'd previously mentioned. And if you look at non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, for example, which is an example of one of the post-transplant lymphoproliferative diseases, the observed number of cases was 1,500 to the expected number of cases about 200, with a standardized incidence ratio of 7.54. Similarly, liver cancers, which is primarily seen in our liver transplant recipients, and of course the virus that's associated with would be hepatitis, the standardized incidence ratio was 11.56. So you could, and of course Kaposi's sarcoma, similarly, the standardized incidence ratio was quite high, uh, looking at the observed versus expected cases in the general population. But um, malignancies associated with oncogenic viruses are not the only malignancies that are more frequently seen in solid organ transplant recipients. And again, this slide is very busy, but what, what I'd like you to look at and see is that um, if you look at lung cancer, for example, again, a standardized incidence ratio of almost two. Kidney cancer, which of course should not be surprising, also a standardized incidence ratio of 4.65. Um, melanomas, a standardized incidence ratio of 2.38. Interestingly, in this study, when you look at prostate cancer and breast cancer, uh, the incidence ratios were less than one, and in fact, almost somewhat lower rate of breast cancer and prostate cancer in transplant patients. And the thought process behind that is that these are very heavily screened patients. So these are patients who get their mammograms and they get screened for prostate cancer um, per protocols of being worked up, and that perhaps is the reason. 
And what's also was interesting in this study is when you look at the type of malignancy seen, it was highly dependent on the type of organ received. So uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, for example, uh, seemed to be much higher in the lung transplant population. Lung cancer, also much higher in the lung transplant population, and that was really found in the remnant lung. If there was a person who received only one lung for transplant, the cancer tended to arise in the native lung. And then when you look at liver cancer, for example, also the standardized incidence ratio is much higher in those patients receiving liver transplants. One indication for liver transplantation is hepatocellular carcinoma, um, and also the association of liver cancer with hepatitis. So um, what is the role of the immune system in cancer surveillance? This would explain, of course, why we, uh, why they may have an increased incidence in the transplant community. So we know that in the immunocompetent state, the immune system works to prevent the growth and proliferation of cancer cells, and it works in three phases. The first phase, the elimination or immunosurveillance phase, where the activation of the innate and adaptive immune cells and molecules uh, to protect normal cells from becoming tumor cells um, when exposed to pro-oncogenic stimuli. So in the adaptive immune cells case, CD4 CD4 and CD8 T cells are very important in immunosurveillance or eliminating those cells that are exposed to pro-oncogenic stimuli or those tumor cells when they're exposed to pro-oncogenic stimuli. Then the tumor cells would go into an equilibrium phase, um, which is where they maintained an immune-mediated latent period. And then there's the escape phase, where tumor cells progress to clinical disease and or metastasis. In an immunosuppressed state, like in transplantation, the mechanisms of immunosurveillance are altered, increasing the risk of malignancy. And why are they altered? Well, they're altered in large part because of our medications. So induction therapies, for example, like T-cell depleting therapies, one of which being alemtuzumab or Campath, which we don't use at UCSF but is used as an induction therapy in other parts of the country, ATG or thymoglobulin, and then OKT3, these confer a high risk of post-transplant malignancies. And studies have linked these agents to post-transplant lymphoproliferative disease, melanomas, colorectal cancers, and thyroid cancers. And then, of course, the calcineurin inhibitors, which are tacrolimus and cyclosporin. These bind to and inactivate calcineurin, and they result in the inhibition of interleukin-2 production, which inhibits T-cell activation and proliferation. So clearly, it's going to impair the natural immunosurveillance. But in addition, calcineurins also upregulate vascular endothelial growth factor and increase expression of TGF-beta, both of which are known to play roles in the development of cancer growth. And there are some agents out there that are anti-cancer agents uh, that are anti-VEGF, for example. They also, the calcineurin inhibitors, increase oncogenic viral replication like Epstein-Barr virus, HHV-8, and HPV, and the uncontrolled replication of these viruses can result in PTLD, KS, and skin and cervical cancers. What about the anti-metabolites? Azathioprine interferes with DNA replication and inhibits T lymphocyte proliferation and has been linked to squamous cell skin cancer um, by eliminating the natural DNA repair process necessary to mediate DNA mutations secondary to UV radiation exposure. And for those of you who have seen patients who were transplanted 30 years ago who are maintained only on imuran and prednisone, which was the regimen back then, you can see clearly um, that most of them will show up with a, a huge amount of actinic keratoses as well as squamous cell carcinoma. So it's a big problem. 
However, with Myfortic or MMF, um, there's less consistency of data regarding the risk of malignancy with this agent. Um, and as you know, the mechanism of action is it inhibits the enzyme inosine monophosphate dehydrogenase, um, inhibiting TMB cell proliferation. And then there's Belatacept, uh, which is a co-stimulation uh, blockade agent, which has been found to increase the incidence in P of PTLD as well, primarily in serologically EBV-negative recipients receiving organs from EBV-positive uh, donors. And I do want to focus a little bit on this because um, there's some therapies coming out in the cancer uh, in the uh, cancer community, which I which um, are very relevant to this talk, and I think are very fascinating. And they make uh, they take advantage of the exact same pathways that Belatacept takes advantage of. So again, just to remind you, uh, the T cell, in order to become activated, needs not just signal one, but a signal two, called a co-stimulation signal, in order to become active. Where Belatacept works is it, bi it binds uh, CD8086, which does not allow the CD28 to bind, and therefore the T cell cannot become activated. Well, new cancer, new cancer therapies, or this new immunotherapy, is very fascinating because it's taking advantage of those same co-stimulation um, pathways. And what it's trying to do is the polar opposite of what we want to do in transplant. So whereas in transplant, we want negative sig signals to go through. We want CTLA-4, which basically tells immune, the T cell to shut down. Um, we want those pathways to be, to be active. Um, and what, what the cancer therapies are doing is the polar opposite. The tumor cells seem to be able to upregulate these ligands, PDL1 and PDL2, on their surface to bind with PD1 in the T cell, which ultimately shuts down the T cell. And that's how these tumor cells are able to evade the immune system. These new immunotherapies in cancer, uh, one of which is an anti-PD1 antibody, which is used in melanoma, for example, um, will block that pathway, which will make the immune system activated and will destroy the tumor cell. Finally, mTOR inhibitors, um, which we know about everolimus and serolimus, these are interesting agents because they possess both immunosuppressant as well as anti-cancer activity. The PI3K-AKT mTOR pathway plays an essential role in all living cells for growth, proliferation, survival, and motility. And some possible mechanisms for its anti-malignant properties are inhibition of P70S6 kinase, inhibition of interleukin-10, uh, inhibition of cyclins, which block cell cycle activity, and impairing the signaling of vascular endothelial growth factor, which is critical for lymphangiogenesis for malignancies. So does malignancy pre-transplant matter? Does it affect post-transplant outcomes? And so briefly, uh, there's two studies that I'm going to review very quickly. Um, one was published in 2016, looking at the, associate, the association of pre-transplant skin cancers. So this is all skin cancers, melanoma and non-melanoma. And looking at its association with post-transplant malignancies of all kinds, graft failure and death in kidney transplant recipients. And this was published by some of our colleagues at UCLA. Um, and it looked at 1,671 recipients with and 102,000 recipients without pre-transplant skin malignancies. And what you can see clearly is when you're looking at the adjusted cumulative instance of post-transplant malignancy, and, we're and again, this is all malignancies, so other solid tumors in addition, you could see that clearly having had a pre-transplant skin cancer of any kind uh, results in a much higher incidence of overall post-transplant malignancies. 
And then when you look at mortality in recipients with and without pre-transplant skin cancers, clearly you can see that patient survival is decreased, statistically significantly decreased, in those patients who had a pre-transplant skin cancer compared to those who did not. Okay, this got a little screwed up for some reason. Sorry about that. Um, Let me try. Um, All right, well, in this study, I'll see if I can get through the slide. Um, It looked at the outcomes of solid organ transplant recipients. This was a meta-analysis with pre-existing malignancies of any kind in remission. And it looked at, again, a meta-analysis and included 23 studies. Um, and they were included if they compared solid organ transplant recipients with pre-transplant malignancy to recipients without any kind of cancer history, and they looked at all-cause mortality, specific cause mortality, and incidence of post-transplant de novo malignancies. And as you can see, uh, in those studies, in this meta-analysis, which was just published this year, a couple months ago, clearly um, all-cause, all-cause mortality was significantly increased in all patients who had solid organ, um, uh, who had tumors or malignancies in remission pre-transplant. And this looked specifically at cancer-related mortality in those patients with pre-transplant malignancies. Um, so the answer is it does matter. Okay, so then, this is also a little bit messed up, sorry, but um, so what do we do? We typically have wait times um, pre-transplantation uh, for, uh, that, we, that we do to ensure that the patient is in remission and to minimize the risk of recurrence post-transplant. And so this is a slide that, um, that shows you different recommendations. Uh, there are even things like floating around on the screen there. Um, oh, I guess I should stop trying to use the pointer. Um, Anyway, so, um, and what you could see is different societies have different recommendations. So um, if it's an empty circle, they recommend no years for wait time. Dots recommended two years, lines two to five years. Uh, A gray dot is a minimum of five years, and a black dot is contraindicated. Um, And so you could see here that, for example, renal cell carcinoma, if it's small or discovered incidentally, most of these societies recommend no wait time whatsoever, which is similar to what we do at UCSF. Uh, In situ bladder cancers, and in fact most in situ cancers in general, there's really no recommended wait time. Um, And then early stage breast cancers, anywhere from uh, two to excuse me, two to five years is recommended. Of course, more advanced stages um, is at least five years, and in some cases, um, it's not recommended at all to go forward with a kidney transplant. Um, Uterine cancer, prostate cancer, melanomas, for example, um, is um, at least a five-year wait time because of its very high recurrence rate. So in summary, for our program, we typically don't have any waiting period necessary with low-risk tumors. So as I mentioned, an incidentally discovered renal cell carcinoma, which is per our criteria less than four centimeters localized to the kidney, what we typically do is we'll have no wait time, we'll transplant them, and they'll remove that kidney at the time of surgery. Um, In situ carcinomas, we also um, typically don't have a wait time. Primary basal cell cancers and low-grade bladder cancers, really no waiting period uh, for transplantation. Transplants should be delayed at least five years with tumors that carry a high risk of recurrence, including melanoma, breast cancer, and colon cancer. And then most other cancers we look at basically on an individual basis. Uh, most other tumors that we typically wait about two years. But again, we, we try to individualize it and look at uh, uh, the particular circumstance to make a decision about risk benefit for that patient. 
I just wanted to point out that previously it had been a, a thought of as a contraindication over here. I want to point, but I'm okay. Uh, to even transplant patients with myeloma. Um, that is no longer thought to be a contraindication anymore. So working with Dr. Jeff Wolf, um, who is a, an oncologist who specializes in myeloma at UCSF, he had approached our transplant team to say, well, myeloma uh, was treated very differently several years ago, and now there have been several more agents that have come, um, come on board, including Velcade, which is bortezomib, as well as Revlimid, which have basically changed the course of myeloma. It's become a much more treatable disease. And his thought was that we should begin transplanting these patients. So we have started transplanting these patients. And actually, um, one of our uh, transplant nephrology fellows, Tui Lee and myself, wrote up our experience with four of those patients who we transplanted, um, looking at one-year outcomes, basically. And um, surprisingly, they did quite well, actually. There were no rejection episodes reported. None of them developed CMV or BK. The number of hospitalizations were anywhere from one to three, which is not unusual and not any different from the general transplant population. Um, And one patient did have a recurrence of melanoma, which was treated. Um, And so we started to do this. And this is what our protocol is, because several of you are going to be seeing these patients with myeloma on on dialysis. What we typically do... um, Of course, each case is individualized, but our general protocol has been these patients have received, you know, induction chemotherapy and received an auto stem cell transplant, and we want them to be maintained on minimal therapy for myeloma, typically one drug regimen. We prefer Velcade, which is bortezomib, simply because there's some data for it in the the transplant population in terms of its treatment of antibody-mediated rejection and and its activity against plasma cells specifically. So we want them maintained preferably on one drug regimen with a repeat bone marrow at one year after their auto stem cell transplant, which shows a VGPR, which is literally a very good uh, a partial response. That's how they they, um, they define their response rates to a complete remission. Um, and then we want hemon clearance. So this has been our protocol, and it's been pretty successful, and it's something that's pretty exciting. Okay, let's talk about management of malignancies post-kidney transplantation. So we want to, obviously, we want to um, focus on preventative measures. We want to avoid excess immunosuppression, and I think that our transplant center is very unique in in trying to do this. Some centers use protocols, and they use the same uh, immunosuppressive regimen for every transplant recipient. We don't do that. We look at each patient individually, at their sensitization status, their comorbidities, and we try to pick the best regimen for that individual. Um, We also... Obviously, we want to uh, implement age-appropriate screening, vaccinations, um, and want to minimize sun exposure, uh, which is incredibly important. And here is current guidelines for cancer screening in the general population and after transplantation. And there are some differences. As we, as we mentioned, since skin cancer is so common in our patient population, we do recommend uh, monthly self-skin exams and every 6 to 12 months an exam by a dermatologist, which is something that we recommend for all our patients and can certainly have you guys help us out in making sure our patients are compliant with that. Um, In terms of... um you know, cervical cancer screening, there's also a difference, whereas in the general population, um, they have lowered the, the frequency to being about um, uh, every two or three years. In our patient population, once sexually active, we recommend annual uh, pap smears. Um, there's no specific guidelines for looking at um, renal tract cancers. Um, so we don't have, we specifically do try to f- um, screen the other, um, our um, 
recipients who've had a history of renal cell carcinoma to make sure that the other kidney is not affected routinely, but we don't routinely have ultrasounds for all of our transplant recipients looking for renal cell carcinoma. Things that makes us us suspicious are an erythrocytosis, for example, post-transplant, that may make us look for a renal cell carcinoma in those patients. So what about treatment of post-transplant malignancies? Clearly, the number one, two, three, four, five thing to do is to reduce immunosuppressive therapy. Some of that, uh, reducing immunosuppressive therapy may result in complete tumor regression uh, in some early cases of PTLD and some skin cancers and Kaposi's sarcoma. Uh, some centers first reduce the antimetabolite um, for fear because there is a lower risk of rejection when you're on a CNI and a prednisone than MMF and prednisone. But data really suggests that the calcineurin really plays more of a causative role um, in malignancies and has been implicated even in promoting metastases. So what about mTOR inhibitors? Well, in the CONVERT trial, it showed a reduction in the incidence of skin cancer in the the group of patients that were converted to mTOR inhibitors, sirolimus, compared with those remaining on CNI. And there were two recent randomized controlled trials which were designed specifically to evaluate the effectiveness of mTOR as immunosuppressive agents in the context of malignancy. I'll review one of those. This was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2012, and it looked at sirolimus and secondary skin cancer prevention in in kidney transplantation. This was a multi-center trial randomly assigned uh, transplant recipients who were taking calcineurins and had at least one cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma either to receive uh, sirolimus as a substitute for CNI or to be maintained on their initial treatment. And the primary endpoint was survival-free of new squamous cell carcinoma at two years. So uh, this shows you the results. This is the probability of survival free of a new cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma at two years. So in um, panel A, you can clearly see that there was a statistically significant difference in um, the amount of time um, uh, survival-free without a new uh, new squamous cell carcinoma between those who were on the mTOR inhibitor and those who were on CNI, and that was statistically significant. And in panel B, this looks at specifically those patients who only had one squamous cell carcinoma at the time of diagnosis who were then randomized to the two uh, groups. And clearly that was highly statistically significant where the development of new squamous cell carcinoma post just one initial one was significant, whereas in those who had multiple squamous cell carcinomas, um, it was not statistically significant, though there was clearly a trend toward improvement in terms of developing new squamous cell carcinomas. Unfortunately, adverse events in the sirolimus group led to discontinuation in 15 patients after a median of two and a half months, and there were 60 serious adverse events versus 14 in the CNI group. And the benefit-risk ratio appeared to increase with lower doses of rapamune as opposed to higher doses. And there was a more pronounced effect after the first occurrence of squamous cell carcinoma. And the author speculated that rapamune might act on skin cancer through antiviral mechanisms that have been shown with other viruses. Kaposi's sarcoma, reduction of immunosuppression has been associated with disappearance of KS in 17 and 16% of patients with mucocutaneous disease and visceral involvement, respectively. The elimination of CNI is vital to the treatment of KS post-transplant, and the substitution of sirolimus for cyclosporin in a total of 17 transplant patients has been associated with complete regression of the Kaposi's sarcoma. So what's our practice at UCSF? Reduction of immunosuppression, we reduce the calcineurin inhibitor, plus minus the the antimetabolite as well. 
if there's chemotherapy planned, which tends to be very myelosuppressive, we, we usually stop the antimetabolite completely. And we convert to mTOR inhibitors if there's no contraindication. Of course, if there's proteinuria or if there's an upcoming surgical procedure planned, um, we would probably not convert to mTOR inhibitors. But we, we like to convert, especially when there's very strong data for uh, including skin cancers, Kaposi sarcoma, possibly even renal cell carcinoma. So in conclusion, um, malignancy is a leading cause of post-transplant mortality. The risk is especially high for cancers associated with oncogenic viruses, but non-virally mediated cancers are also more prevalent in the transplant population compared to the general population. Anti-rejection therapies impair immunosurveillance, which may promote oncogenesis. Pre-transplant malignancies are associated with worse outcomes post-transplant. More data are needed to assist transplant programs with the complex decision of whether to offer a transplant to individuals with a prior cancer. And I think this quote from Engels and AJT just uh, this year uh, talked about how transplant centers need, need to work on careful balancing of a patient's risk of dying without a transplanted organ, the risk of dying from cancer recurrence following transplantation, and the societal need to maximize the benefit of transplantation across the population. Avoiding excessive immunosuppression um, and following cancer screening guidelines can help prevent post-transplant malignancy. Once diagnosed, immunosuppression reduction is the first-line therapy, and mTOR inhibitors can be used to substitute CNIs in the setting of malignancies where there are no contraindications, but unfortunately tend to be limited by some, some side effects. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.